If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. Today's lecture is about the problem of design. So the obvious place to begin, isn't it, is with things that are clearly not designed. This is just a plain, ordinary stone. The laws of physics, left on their own, will produce something like that. They can also produce something like this, which looks superficially like a boot, but the resemblance is purely accidental. It means absolutely nothing. Nor does the resemblance of this to a fish mean anything, nor the resemblance of that to a duck's head. This is slightly more interesting, but it's still purely fortuitous. It looks like an egg, and inside is a little dummy embryo. But again, it's pure luck. That's just produced by physics alone. That's also true of these rather beautiful-looking crystals. But this is rather more interesting, because crystals are what you get when atoms, all of the same kind, are allowed to stack up together in the way that they, quote, want to do. It's a different kind of crystal, a desert rose, almost looks as though it might have been made by a jeweller. But all these objects are fortuitous. None of them is designed. All the stones belong in the category that I'm going to call simple. The same is true of clouds and stars. Nobody designed them. They came to be the way they are by the simple consequences of the unaided laws of physics. They're examples of the way things just happen to be. Now we're ready to look at some objects that really are designed. This microscope. Nobody could possibly mistake that for an object that just happens to be the way it is. Everything about it has design written all over it. It has a long tube to look down, a lens this end, another lens that end, a mirror to reflect light up through the tube, knobs to change the focus, other knobs to move the slide from side to side and back and forth. Even the knobs themselves are roughened to make them easier to grip. A designed object. The same is true of this calculating machine. The same is true of this watch. There are some slightly more difficult cases. These flint arrowheads, there's not much doubt that they're designed. They are uh, shaped in a way that you wouldn't normally expect stone on the beach to be shaped. This one's a bit more doubtful. Experts tell us, archaeologists tell us, that that is a designed object, that some primitive people did indeed shape that for a purpose, and I'm prepared to believe them. But that's a slightly more difficult case. Never mind about them. There are plenty of objects which are absolutely obviously designed. What do they all have in common, these designed objects? They are all good for some purpose, and they couldn't have come to be the way they are by luck. The microscope is obviously very good at its purpose of greatly magnifying objects, and most certainly it couldn't have come about by luck. If you take a lot of atoms and shake them up at random, then you may get a crystal, but you will not in a billion, billion, billion years get a microscope. This is a gazunda, so-called because it goes under, and uh, it clearly it has a more humble purpose than the microscope, but it works very well in its purpose. It's clearly designed. Once we realise what its purpose is, which is to hold water, we can come up with a crude measure of how good it is. We can measure, we can say the cost of the pot is the amount of clay that goes into it, and the benefit of it is the amount of water that it holds. And so its efficiency is the ratio of the weight of water that it holds to the weight of clay that goes into making it. If we compare it with this pot, which is not made by man, but is a natural stone, it also would hold water, but it wouldn't hold very much water for the amount of stone that goes into it. Its efficiency ratio is not very high, and indeed it's not a designed object, it is a simple object which just happened to be. So we've divided these objects into those that are designed and those that I'm calling simple. 
But now I want to introduce a large and very important category of objects that are certainly not simple, and I shall argue that they are not designed. But they look overwhelmingly and compellingly as though they were designed. And I'm going to call them designoid objects. Designoid objects look designed, but they actually got their designed look from a very different process, which we'll come on to later. You may find it hard at this stage to believe that designoid objects are not designed, but just wait. So let's have our first designoid object. Thank you. Now, this is Andrew, isn't it? And what's the snake called? Squeeze. Squeeze. The snake's called Squeeze. It's a boa constrictor, and it is a magnificent example of a designoid object. It looks as though it's been beautifully designed for a purpose. And one of those purposes is swallowing prey which look very much too large for it to swallow. And one of the ways in which it achieves this is by the head. The bones of the head, the bones of the skull, are capable of detaching, coming apart, under the skin of course, so that the head swells to a huge size relative to what it starts. And there's a great gaping maw which is capable then of swallowing very much larger prey than you'd think. The skin here is a beautiful mottled colour which you could imagine would be very, very highly camouflaged in a forest. The snake has lost its legs. Losing legs is a very common thing among reptiles. There are many lines of evolution of reptiles which have lost their legs. What the boa constrictor is best at is throttling its prey. <laughs> and I think that both Andrew and Squeeze deserve a round of applause. Thank you very much. Just looking at the outside of Squeeze gives us no real idea at all of what an extraordinarily complicated structure he and all other living things is. A living thing like Squeeze is not just more complicated than the microscope. It is billions of times more complicated than the microscope. Let's come back to pots. We've seen a designed pot and we've seen a simple accidental pot. Now here's a designoid pot. This is a pitcher plant. Here you see the individual pitchers, there's an enlargement. They're filled with water and they're traps for insects. Insects fall into the trap and drown. This is how a pitcher begins. This is the next stage in development. It begins as a leaf. You see the hole just beginning to form. This is a young pitcher. And then we're going to see there's the full pitcher. There's a fly climbing up it. There's a slippery area at the top. The fly's down into the water. It's now going to drown and in due course, its products will be digested by the plant. Here is a live pitcher plant. Here is one of its pitchers. You can see the little lid over it. There's the slip zone there, and inside is the water. It appears to be a well-designed object, a well-designed pot. If we were to do our cost-benefit ratio, our measure of the amount of water that it holds over the weight of the plant material itself, we'd find that it was a very efficient pot indeed. But we'd also find that if we looked inside, cut sections of it, it would have a very complicated structure. This is the inside of a single cell of a pitcher plant through an electron microscope, and you can see the complexity of it. What's more interesting is that this internal structure is very well fitted to make a lot of oxygen and secrete it into the water of the pitcher. And this has a very useful effect because in the water of the pitcher are living a lot, a motley crew of little maggots and other insects. Now, what are they doing? Well, it's all very well eating insects like a pitcher plant does, but a plant doesn't have any teeth and it's difficult to eat insects if you haven't got teeth. So what the pitcher plant in effect does is to borrow the teeth of these maggots 
in its pitcher. So what the maggots do is they eat the prey that fall into the pitcher, and then their excretory products are what are finally absorbed by the pitcher plant. So really the pitcher plant is just getting the same thing as any other plant gets when it gets when it eats manure, in effect. But what the pitcher plant is doing is sequestering for itself a private supply of manure by luring insects and by supplying the maggots that live in the pot with a nice oxygen-rich freshwater atmosphere, which otherwise they wouldn't like to live in. Here's another sort of pot, a designoid pot. This is made by a trapdoor spider. You can see the trapdoor at the top. The spider lives inside. And another one here. This is the pot of a potter wasp. That's a solitary wasp, not like the social wasps, which build comb more like this honeycomb here. The potter wasp female builds a pot like that out of mud and lays her egg in it, and then the larva grows up inside the pot. Look how beautifully it resembles this designed pot. This is a truly designed pot made by somebody in Mexico. See how similar it is to the pot made by the potter wasp. Yet another animal pot. This was made by a mason bee. Exquisite little thing. It is used for the same purpose as the potter wasp's pot, but it has a different structure. It is just like a house built by humans. These are little individual stones which the bee, the female bee, has gathered and has cemented together to build up this delightful pot structure. And the story doesn't end there because we can only see one pot, but underneath here are four more pots. And they've been carefully covered up by the bee who has gone to the river and gathered clay to cover over her pots the clay is exactly the same colour and texture as the rock on which the pot is placed. So that the bee's predators, the predators who might come and eat larvae out of the pot, would never have, would never known a million years that there were any pots under there. Here's another beautiful example of designoid architecture. These gigantic megaliths like Avebury or Stonehenge are built by the compass termite of Australia. They're huge structures like blocks of flats, Certainly on termite scale, they are like blocks of flats. They are all pointing exactly north-south, which is another very cunning feature, because that means that they get the morning sun on one side and they get the evening sun on the other, so they get nicely warmed up in the cool parts of the day. But in the hot part of the day, the midday sun, that hits them end-on, and so they don't heat up too much, which is why all these termite nests, they're called compass termites. You can always, when you're in the desert, tell which direction north-south is by looking for a compass termite nest. Even larger is this other, another kind of termite nest. You can see the scale there. This is a most colossal structure. The Austrian ethologist Karl von Frisch remarked that if humans built structures on the same scale as termites do, then the structures that we would build would be four times as, as high as the Empire State Building. So termites are very, very impressive architects. These designoid objects are very impressive indeed. We're switching now from objects which are apparently designed by animals to the design of animals themselves, the apparent design of animals themselves. And I'm beginning with camouflage. If you were walking through the desert, you would probably think to a casual look that that was a stone. 
but it's not a stone, it's a grasshopper. It just looks like a stone and it gets protection from looking like a stone. And in the next example, this looks to me exactly like seaweed. It's one of my favorite of all designoid objects. Uh, it is in fact a fish, it's a seahorse. There's its head, there's its neck, there's its body. And these objects sticking out here are part of the fish's body, but anybody would think that they were parts of a seaweed. They look exactly like parts of a seaweed and the seahorse hides among seaweed of just the right type. It's almost perfectly camouflaged. And we have a few more examples. This is a film of, and you'll see what it is in a moment, it's in fact a leaf insect. There's the shield over the thorax, there's the head, here come the wings, and it, when it isn't moving, perhaps even when it is moving, it looks exactly like leaves. It's just flown off. Here's another look, thing, looks just like a plant, turns out to be a green snake. And this, you would think, was a plant with a bud on the end, a long green stem, more buds. Only when we get to the front end do we just about spot that it has an eye, antennae, and legs. Uh, it is, in fact, a stick insect. Look at these leaves here, autumn leaves. Look at the vein up the middle of the leaves. Look at the veins on either side. Look at the little splodges of dark-colored mold on the leaves. But those are not leaves, those are butterflies. Look there, you can just see the body there, 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 there. That's what these butterflies look like when they open their wings. This is what they look like on the underside of the wings. And they normally sit with the wings folded so that you only see the underside of the wings. And you're very hard put to it to see that they're not dead leaves. Only when they open the wings do you get this flash of brilliant coloration. Camouflaged animals resemble inedible objects. Designoid objects sometimes resemble other designoid objects for other reasons, because they're doing the same job. And this is called convergent evolution. This is an ordinary hedgehog. That is nothing whatever to do with a hedgehog, but superficially it looks like it. That is a spiny anteater. It is a mammal, but you might say only just a mammal. It's an egg-laying mammal, a very primitive mammal, from Australia and New Guinea. As a matter of fact, its way of life is not that close to a hedgehog's way of life. Uh, this is an anteater, whereas hedgehogs eat more general things, insects and worms and things. But both of them gain protection from having spiny skins, and so they both superficially look very alike. An example of convergent evolution. An even better example of convergent evolution is the so-called marsupial wolf. Now, if you saw that going along on a lead down the street, you would think it was a dog. A slightly odd sort of dog, perhaps. There aren't many dogs that have quite that structure at the tail end. But you would think that that would not really be out of place at Crufts. But this is not a dog. It has nothing whatever to do with dogs. This is a marsupial. It's much more closely related to kangaroos and wombats and koalas. It's now most unfortunately extinct, only fairly recently extinct. It went extinct this century in Tasmania, went extinct some thousands of years ago on the mainland of Australia. And the reason it looks so like a dog is that it does the same job as a dog, or did the same job as a dog. It ran and hunted prey in the same sort of way as a dog does. And that, that's why it has the same shape as a dog. Okay, perhaps you could take it now, Bryson. Thank you. The structure inside also resembles that of a dog. This is a dog skull, and this is the skull of the Tasmanian wolf. It's a bit larger, but of course the size of the skull will depend on how big the dog is anyway, and we could easily get a, a bigger dog skull than this. The only reliable way to tell that this is a marsupial and not a real dog is if you look underneath those two holes in the palate there give the game away. Those are the telltale clues that tell us that this is a marsupial and not a real dog. A real dog doesn't have the same kind of holes there. Well, that's convergent evolution among designoid objects. Designed objects, too, 
sometimes resemble each other because they're doing the same job. Two aeroplanes closely resemble one another, not because of industrial espionage, not because of imitation, but because the wind tunnel is a great leveler of differences. These planes have both been designed for the same purpose, and when you design planes for the same purpose of flying very fast through the air and carrying a large payload of passengers, those planes are going to come out looking pretty similar, in just the same way as the dog and the marsupial wolf come out looking similar. So we've seen convergence between two designoid objects, and we've seen convergence between two designed objects. How about convergence between designed and designoid objects? Well, here is a camera, which is a designed object, and here is an eye, a designoid object. They both do something very similar. They both have a lens at the front, which focuses an image on a light-sensitive surface at the back. In the eye, it's called the retina. In the camera, it is a film. There are detailed resemblances as well. Both of them have an iris diaphragm, opens and closes to regulate the amount of light that goes in. In an automatic camera, the amount of light that goes in and out is automatically regulated by a light meter. It says when it gets brighter, close down the hole. When it gets darker, open up the hole. And the human eye also has an automatic light meter. Now, I wonder whether we could have a volunteer to... Right, in the front row there. That... Yes, right. What's your name? Gillian. <laughs> and would you like to take your glasses off, Gillian? Thank you. And come and sit down here, please. Now, what you'd like... What you do, please, is look into the camera there and they're going to take a picture of your eye, of your iris. What I'm going to do is I'm going to shine this light into the other eye, and I hope it won't be too bright. And what we, what we hope to see is that your iris will contract when I shine the light in. So look into the camera, and I'm going to shine the light. Did you see it contract? Look into the camera. There it contracts, do you see it? I think it's best perhaps to look into the eye that I'm actually shining the light into. And not, not you. Um, <laughs> look, in, look into the camera. Is it too bright for you? No. Okay, look into the camera. There it goes. Do you see it? Thank you very much, Gillian. And there are numerous other examples of living things being exactly the way a human engineer would have designed them. Okay, well, I hope that's enough to convince you that there's something special about living objects. They look designed. They look overwhelmingly as though they are designed. I call them designoid, and I asked you to accept this different title. But it's terribly, terribly tempting to use the word design. Time and again, I have to bite my tongue and stop myself saying, for example, that this Swift is designed for rapid, high-speed, highly maneuverable flight. And as a matter of fact, when talking to other biologists, we none of us bother to bite our tongues. We just use the word designed. But I've told you that they're actually not designed and coined the special word designoid. And I said that there is a special process that brings designoid objects into existence and gives them their apparently designed look. What is that special process? The answer to this question was discovered surprisingly recently in the middle of the last century. One of the greatest discoveries of all time, made by one of the greatest scientists of all time, Charles Robert Darwin. Quite a surprisingly long time after he discovered his principle of evolution by natural selection, he wrote this famous book, The Origin of Species. This is an original first edition inscribed by the author, very valuable. Darwin began his argument on natural selection. He introduced it in terms of another process called artificial selection or selective breeding. All these vegetables here have been bred by human breeders for different kinds of food purposes. There's an ordinary cabbage, an ordinary cabbage, um, cauliflower, red cabbage, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, 
kohlrabi, each of these different sorts of plants has emphasized a different aspect of the original wild ancestor, the wild cabbage. So kohlrabi, for example, has a greatly swollen stem. Cauliflower has a greatly enlarged flower. So does broccoli, but in a different way. They're all descended over the last couple of thousand years from the same wild ancestor, the wild cabbage. Now that's the wild cabbage as grown by Bryson. Uh, Bryson has many virtues, but green fingers are not among them. Nevertheless, if you were to take this home and grow it for a little while, water it properly, look after it, it would grow up into a wild cabbage. It wouldn't look, it wouldn't look very like any of those cabbages. That's the point I'm making. They've all come from the wild cabbage, but they're all very different from the wild cabbage. All the breeds of domestic dogs have been bred from the same common ancestor, namely a wolf. Those dogs look terribly different. You'd never think they were members of the same species, but they all, in fact, come from the same species, a wolf. Now, how do we get, what is this artificial selection, this selective breeding that enables you to go from a wolf to something like that or that or that? Well, I'm going to tell you very, very briefly what it is. You start with your ancestor, the wolf. And I'm going to suppose for simplicity that everybody on this side of the room is going to imagine breeding for smaller and smaller wolves, and everybody on that side is going to imagine breeding for larger and larger wolves. So in every litter of wolves that we get, if you're on the small side, what you do is you look out for those individual puppies that are a bit smaller than the average. And those are the ones that you breed from. And on this side, you breed from the larger ones. Now, it's going to take a long time Generation after generation, you mate together relatively small dogs, wolves, and on this side, you mate together relatively large wolves. And after many generations, perhaps hundreds, perhaps thousands of generations, perhaps a couple of thousand years of this selective breeding, because there are genes involved in controlling the differences between the different puppies, cubs, eventually you may end up with something like what I hope is now going to come in. That would be the end product of breeding for larger and larger sized wolves. That would be something like the original ancestor that you started from, and that would be the end product of breeding for smaller and smaller wolves. <laughs> what are their names? Jemima and, Jemima and Wilf are chihuahuas. Jemima is a smooth-haired chihuahua, Wilf is a rough-haired ch chihuahua, and both of them comparatively recently are descended from a wild wolf. This is Sequin, who's a German shepherd, and I think we could say that Sequin is the one who most resembles the ancestral wolf. And this is Archie. Archie, that's a fine name. Archie, a Great Dane, and here's what you get from breeding for larger and larger size. But they're all descended from a wolf. They're all cousins of one another, and Sequin is showing great interest. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Charles Darwin was very interested in dogs. He was also very interested in pigeons. Thank you. You're on my notes, pigeon. <laughs> this is a Marchinero cropper. It's a pigeon which has been bred by artificial selection from the wild rock dove. And in this case, it's been bred for thickness of feathers and for size of crop. You see the great big crop at the front, which is blowing up like that, and see how big the feathers are. Now, in the cage here, we didn't quite trust these ones to be let out. We trust this one. This is a domestic flight pigeon, and you see how it's been bred for this curious little ruff round the back of the neck, and also the red ring round the eye. The other one is an English short-faced tumbler pigeon. You see the extraordinary short face and the tiny, small beak. 
And that again is a product of artificial selection, just like in the case of the dogs and the cabbages. The beak is so short, in the case of the English short-faced tumbler, that this breed is no longer capable of feeding its own young. And so the only way that breed can be reared is by its babies being reared by pigeons of another breed. The same, that sort of thing often happens, by the way, with artificial selection. Uh, it's true of bulldogs. If you, you probably know that uh, the, the bulldog breed of dog has a head that's so big that it can't be born. And the only way a bulldog can be born is by caesarean section. And so the entire breed depends upon humanity to keep it going. If we went extinct, the bulldog would go extinct. Now, artificial selection, the process that produces these dogs and these pigeons and these cabbages, is too slow for us to see during the course of one lecture. But we can imitate it on a computer. And I'm going to do it with a program called Arthromorphs. These are arthromorphs. This is the parent arthromorph, and round the, the edge of it are eight child arthromorphs. And they resemble the parent very closely, but there may be a, a genetic change, a mutation, a random genetic change as you go from parent to child. So that one, for example, has longer legs. That one's got its legs up instead of down. And the way you breed arthromorphs... Could I have a volunteer to... My goodness. Right, yes. Thank you. Have you ever used a computer with a mouse? Yes, okay. What you do then is you choose the one you want to breed from and just click it once. So he's going for the long-legged one, I think. Click it. It goes to the center and becomes the parent of the next generation. Now you see all the next generation have longer legs. What's your name, by the way? Lawrence. Lawrence. Lawrence, it seems to be breeding for longer legs. I wonder if he's going to continue that. That's right. Keep going. Don't wait for me. Just, just keep on breeding. Okay, Lawrence likes long legs. <laughs> and they're getting longer and... Okay. Now, what I said was that these creatures have genes which are going from parent to child. What would I mean by talking about genes in a computer? Well, in a computer, of course, genes would just be numbers. They're not real genes, they're not made of DNA, but nevertheless, they are genes in the sense that they are what go through from generation to generation. <laughs> There's no sex in these creatures, by the way. These are all reproducing asexually, like stick insects and like aphids. Carry on. <laughs> read, as, read as fast as you can to get through a lot of generations. So what we're seeing now, what Lawrence is doing, is artificial selection, just like our ancestors did with dogs and pigeons. But he's managing to achieve in a couple of minutes what would have taken several centuries for our ancestors to have achieved. What are you going for, Lawrence? What, legs. You're, you're trying to get lots of zigzags in the legs, are you? All right, perhaps we'd better proceed now. So thank you very much indeed, Lawrence. Well, I hope, I think we're all convinced by now that artificial selection works. We've seen the result of it in dogs, cabbages and pigeons, and we've seen it happening before our eyes in the computer arthromorphs. But that's just artificial selection. We only began talking about artificial selection because we're really interested in natural selection. Natural selection is like artificial selection, except that instead of humans doing the choosing, nature does the choosing. Of all the puppies in a litter, or wolf cubs in a litter, instead of our choosing which ones shall breed, what happens is that nature chooses which ones shall breed. The ones that have what it takes to survive will be the ones that breed, automatically chosen. The ones that are good at running fast, the ones whose legs are not too short and not too long, the ones whose teeth are not too blunt and not too sharp, because if they're too sharp, they might break easily. Natural selection, nature, is constantly choosing which individuals shall live, which individuals shall breed. And the result, after many generations of natural selection, is much the same as the result after many generations of artificial selection. So what would it take to change the arthromorph program so that it simulated natural selection instead of artificial selection? Because at present, the arthromorphs are just being chosen 
by the eyes of a human? Could we somehow make the computer do its own choosing, choosing on the basis of quality of arthromorphs? Well, the trouble is it's not easy to judge what quality in an arthromorph might mean, because these arthromorphs are living in a very strange environment, the two-dimensional computer screen. They don't have a real world in which to live. They don't have predators. They don't have prey. They don't have food that they've got to catch. Perhaps we could do better if we made a computer model of a two-dimensional designoid object like a spider web. Now, if we could have the lights down, I think we might be able to see. Now, there is a spider in the middle of its web, and that, I think, shows quite nicely. Good. Right, well, you know what a spider web is for. It's for catching flies and other prey. It's a net, and the, it works in two dimensions. It's, we would have liked to have actually shown you a, a spider building its web, but this one seems to be uh, pretty satisfied with the web it's already got. So what I'm going to do instead is to show you a computer reconstruction of a spider's movements while it builds a web. Now, I have to watch carefully. This is rather speeded up. Can we have that more slowly now, Peter? What the spider's now doing is the radii of the web. Now it's doing the structural spiral, which is a kind of, of uh, scaffolding. And now it's doing the sticky spiral, which is the bit that actually does the business of catching the flies. Let's have it once more slowly. Right, there are the radii. Now it's, now it's doing the scaffolding, and now it's doing the real sticky spiral. What we're seeing there is not actually a picture of the web itself. That's a picture of the movements of a spider that were recorded on a particular day. That's a particular spider on a particular day. Its movements were all fed into the computer, and now the computer is playing it back to us. But that's just a recording of the web of a real particular spider. Now, in order to, to do our trick of making an arthromorph-like program out of spider webs, we've got to make the computer behave like a spider. And this is the program written by Peter Fuchs, who I'm glad to say is next door, uh, controlling the computer. And what his program does is to make the computer build a web as if it was a spider. So the computer is holding in its little head the rules that we know something about of how a spider builds a web. So the computer does the radii like that. It does the spiral like that. Now, just as in the case of the arthromorphs, what Peter has done is to make the building rules of the computer spider under genetic control. There are genes in the computer, just as there were for the arthromorphs, and just as there were for the arthromorphs, the genes are simply numbers. That is the parent web. These are the daughter webs. More strictly, that's the web that was built by the parent spider. These are the webs that were built by the daughter spiders. Now, to begin with, we can treat this just as if it was an arthromorph program. So we want another volunteer. Let's have a girl this time. Right. Yes, please. What's your name? Ursula. Ursula. Come here, Ursula, please. Have you ever used a computer with a mouse? Yes. Yes, good. So this time it's just like the other one, only you have to click twice instead of once to choose which one you think is the best web. Okay, now that web is gone up to the, to the top there. That's now become the parent. And here are the daughter webs that are being drawn and now you can make, choose another one, another generation. So you see, we're doing just the same as we did for the arthromorphs, but now we've got spider webs coming. But the point we were going to go for was not artificial selection. The whole point of doing this with spider webs is to do something like natural selection. And to do that, we simply make the computer work out how good each web would be at catching flies. And we can do that because unlike the case of the arthromorphs, the webs are two-dimensional structures, and we know what they're for. They're for catching flies. So the benefit is simply going to be the number of flies caught. And the cost, we can calculate, because the cost is the amount of silk used. Spider webs are made of silk. So the cost of a web is the amount of silk used, and the benefit is the, is the flies. Now, if you'd like to stop now, or, Ursula, thank you very much. Thank you.
Now, we no longer have a human selector, we now have the flies doing the selecting. So the flies are going to hit the web, and Peter gets it started up again, and right, so now we've got a new generation of webs being built, and we're now going to see the flies hitting the webs. There come the flies, flies again. Now the computer is going to calculate which of the webs is best at catching flies, and it's that one that's gone dark. So that one will now become the parent of the next generation. And now, once again, the webs are being built, the child webs are being built. Once again, the flies will come, the computer will measure which one of them is the best. There it is, and that becomes the parent of the next generation. Now, it wouldn't take very long for us to see the evolution starting from no web at all and going to a nice web that works very well, but we haven't quite got time for it. So instead, what we did was to let the computer run all night, all last night, and we've got a fossil record of all the webs that were built during that time. This was the starting web, the thing that started at the beginning of the night's run, and then every 20 generations, we have a printout of the shape of the web. So we see we start with almost no spiral at all, and you could imagine the flies just whizzing straight through and not getting caught. But then natural selection in the computer led to a gradual improvement in the web, more and more spiral, more and more flies caught, and so evolution went in the direction of a nice full web with a nice full spiral like that, catching lots of flies. That all went on in the computer last night, very fast, telescoping into one night what would have taken thousands of years, perhaps millions of years, in nature. In nature, the successful and the unsuccessful webs would not, of course, be judged by the computer doing a calculation about how many flies would have been caught, would be expected to be caught. They'd be judged automatically, the webs be judged automatically, and without any thought by the flies themselves. The flies themselves just fly into webs, thereby choosing webs for breeding. The flies don't know they're choosing the webs for breeding. They don't particularly want to fly into the webs. But nevertheless, the consequence of their inadvertently flying into webs is that the spider that built the successful web is a spider that's more likely to breed and therefore more likely to pass on the genes for building that sort of web. So as the generations go by, webs get better and better and better, just as they did in the computer in our overnight run. That's natural selection in the case of spider webs, and exactly the same principle works for every living creature, for the bodies of every living creature. Every lion and tiger, every camel, every dog, uh, every human, every giraffe, they all have evolved by the same process of evolution by natural selection. So the Darwinian view is that designoid objects are not designed at all. They have evolved by natural selection. The most popular alternative to the Darwinian view is called creationism. Creationists believe that designoid objects are really designed objects. The only difference is that whereas these designed objects were designed by humans, these designed objects were designed by a divine creator. And the favorite argument of creationists is the so-called argument from design, which was most famously expressed by Archdeacon William Paley in 1802 in the book Natural Theology. And Paley begins his book, In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. In other words, the stone is the kind of object which had always been there and doesn't need any special kind of explanation. But, Paley goes on, what if I accidentally kicked a watch? The watch, I open it up, I see the mechanism, I see the cogwheels and the springs, everything about it looks designed. It had to have a designer. It had to have a watchmaker. And if the watch had to have a watchmaker, then how much more, Paley argued, must these objects, these living objects, including ourselves, have had 
a divine watchmaker. For Paley, it follows as clearly as the night follows the day, that just as the watch had to have a designer, so do we have to have a designer. But of course, just to show that animals and plants look as though they've got a designer begs the question. I've spent much of this lecture trying to persuade you that animals and plants look as though they've got a designer. But I spent the other half of the lecture showing you that there's a, another very good alternative explanation for why they look as though they had a designer, namely natural selection. Well, Paley, of course, lived before Darwin, so he couldn't be expected to know about the alternative. Nevertheless, it was, even without knowing about Darwin, it was possible back in the 18th century to know that Paley's argument was a pretty bad argument. And this was pointed out by David Hume, one of the greatest philosophers of all time. Hume made the point that the argument from design, which, is, which was Paley's argument, is that things like elephants and humans are too complicated to have come about by chance. They have many parts, just like a watch, too complicated to have come about by chance. A designer, a watchmaker, an engineer, is certainly one way in which these objects could come about. These objects could come about. But a watchmaker or a designer or an engineer, if he's to be any good as a watchmaker or an engineer, must be a pretty complicated object himself. It's no good just postulating a designer, because a designer is just the very kind of thing, just the very kind of complicated, ordered thing, that seems to need the very kind of explanation that we're searching for. If a human is too complicated to have come about by luck, or if a swift is too complicated to have come about by luck, then a thousand times more so, any being capable of creating humans must be too complicated to have come about by luck. The argument from design certainly proves that living things couldn't have come about by chance, but by the same token, even more strongly, it shows that a divine creator couldn't have just come about either. The creator would have needed an even bigger creator, and so on. The argument from design is a powerful seeming argument and it powerfully shoots itself in the foot. The Darwinian argument of evolution by natural selection, of course, doesn't suffer from this problem. The Darwinian argument does not explain things as due to chance. Chance, in the form of random genetic mutation, comes into it, but by far the most important part of the Darwinian explanation is the non-random process of natural selection. There's another rather interesting little curiosity, which is that natural objects, designoid objects, have imperfections which you don't, you wouldn't expect to get in objects which were designed by a real designer. This is a flatfish, a halibut. Its ancestors once swam normally in the water like a normal fish does, like that. But the ancestors of the halibut settled down on the bottom of the sea, one side down. They lay on the bottom of the sea, and then now a modern flatfish moves along like that. You've probably seen them doing it. But when it did that, the ancestor found that one of its eyes was looking straight into the sand, only the other one was looking up. And so gradually in evolution, the other eye, the one that was looking into the sand, migrated round the side of the head and came up to the top, with the result that the skull of the halibut is now an extremely distorted object. It's like a sort of Picasso painting of a fish. It's got its two eyes on one side. Now, anybody who was going to design a flatfish wouldn't do it that way. You'd do it like a skate, which is another kind of shark, which is also a flatfish, and it flattened itself, its ancestors flattened itself, by going onto its belly so that both its eyes were looking upwards and it had no need to do any kind of distortion. But by some kind of historical accident, the ancestors of the halibut and the soul and the place all did it by lying on their side, and that meant that they had this distortion. So this is an imperfection in design, which is just the kind of thing you'd expect to see if these creatures had evolved, but is very much not the kind of thing you'd expect to see if these creatures had been created. Evolution starts from simple beginnings. The starting point of evolution is the kind of thing we see here. 
something like crystals, something at least as simple as crystals. And it builds upon simplicity to get towards complexity. We start with a simple foundation. Simple things are easy to understand. We don't have to start with a complicated thing like a creator. On this simple foundation are built designoid objects by natural selection. And only when we have designoid objects with brains as big as human brains does design finally emerge. But why do I say just humans for design? Isn't it rather unfair to the wasps that built these pots and bees and spiders and things, rather unfair to this oven bird that built that mud nest, or that nest of social wasps, which is very similar to that convergently, also built of mud? Why do I use the word design only for human creations and not for the manufacturers of these animals? The difference is that human designs get their goodness and efficiency from conscious human foresight. Wasp pots and oven bird nests get their efficiency directly from natural selection by a kind of hindsight rather than foresight. Genes are selected which influence the bodies of the oven bird and the wasps and particularly the nervous systems which influence the building behavior. The birds and the wasps have no idea of why they're doing what they do. Natural selection simply favors those that build good nests. Humans, on the other hand, do build with foresight. At least they do usually. This is an engineer called Ingo Reckenberg from Germany who designs windmills, and he claims that he designs his windmills by a kind of natural selection. Uh, he does it by putting his windmills in a wind tunnel, measuring how good they are, and then, as he calls it, breeding from those windmills that are good at spinning around in a wind tunnel. The windmills have genes, and again, not real genes, but they are numerical attributes. They're numbers that are used to make other windmills that resemble the parent windmill. And in every generation of windmills, he breeds from the ones that do best in the wind tunnel. And after many generations of testing them and breeding, testing and breeding, he ends up with a windmill that he claims is better than you would get by the ordinary processes of engineering design. But you could say that all engineering design and even all art has a certain Darwinian component. And I want to illustrate this with another computer program called Biomorphs. So can we have a volunteer to run the biomorphs? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Right, yes, please. Uh, what's your name? Rachel. Rachel. Have you ever used a mouse before? Yes. Good. Now, there you have some biomorphs. Try one of those now. What she's doing is guiding the evolution of biomorphs. The biomorphs are controlled by genes just like the arthromorphs and just like the spider webs. And they're coming up by random mutation, but the direction of the evolution is being guided by the human eye just like the direction of breeding cabbages or dogs, but in this case we're just looking for pure aesthetic appeal, just looking for the prettiest ones. And I think you might imagine breeding wallpaper or bathroom tiles or something like this. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Rachel. But in any case, in any case, all creation, all design, all machines and houses and paintings and computers and aeroplanes, everything designed and made by us, everything made by other creatures, is only made possible because there are already brains put together as designoid objects. And designoid objects come about only through gradual evolution. Creation, when it does occur in the universe, is an afterthought. When creation appeared on this planet, it came locally and it came late. Creation does not belong in any account of the fundamentals of the universe. Creation is something that, rather late in the day, grows up in the universe. Thank you very much.
If you enjoyed this episode, you can show some support by leaving a review.